Okay, well, welcome to the very first episode of the uh, Sideline Experts. I'm your co-host, Ned, and I'm joined by Mitch Park-Wilkins. Usually, we'll be also joined by a good mate of ours, Dules, but he's unfortunately unavailable today. He's doing a bit too much study for us. Uh, Mitchie, how are you going? Five or so weeks yeah. in the lockdown. Um, what, are you, what are you missing the most? Yeah, not bad, Ned. I'm hanging in there, mate. It's... Uh... You know, the the odd Zoom sessions keeping my uh, social interactions, you know, at a healthy level. But other than that, nah, mate, definitely uh, missing the footy. Um, yeah, five weeks. It's been a <laughs> feels while. Feels like it's been three months. Yeah, yeah feels like three months. But I mean, no, definitely last, keen to talk footy at least. Yeah, the the last couple of weeks have sort of have been positive, particularly on uh, the rugby front, um, and we do have a lot of questions to sort of roll through today. So. I don't want to uh, uh, dwell on this too much, but I want, I want to get going because at the moment it really is a monumental task for Rugby Australia um, and the wider mm. game of rugby in general for that matter because we're in a precarious position. We've sort of ended up in this uh, coronavirus mixer just like all the other professional sports, but mm. we're in a place where we probably weren't ready for it as much as uh, some others were. So I, I think... The first thing we want to really talk about is, is you know, where, where, where is our game? So uh, probably about six weeks ago, Super Rugby uh, stopped. So that's our local mm-hmm. trans-Tasman competition. Um, and since then, there's been ongoing negotiations between Rupa, the player organisation, and Rugby Australia. We know that Railing Castle has taken a 65% pay cut. They've had a 70% stand down in their staff. Um, what is the situation between Rupa and Rugby Australia at the moment? Because I know in the last couple of days, the details of that um, pay negotiation has come out. Mitch, can you give us an update on that? Yeah, look, Ned, I, I definitely think it needed to happen in a, a speedy resolution, albeit, you know, it took a little bit of time. You know, they didn't quite meet the deadline they were hoping, but I'm glad it's come to an outcome nonetheless. So I think the big takeaway for me personally is the fact that, um, you know, players have... Um, you know, come on board with this whole uh, utilitarian approach of Rugby Australia of, you know, we're all in this together. We're all going to um, invest in this dip, um, you know, because as much as we'd like to sugarcoat it, it's certainly not a desirable time for the game and right. for sports broadly. But mm-hmm. um, I think the big takeaway, so for those who aren't familiar, um, you know, this average 60% reductions in pay for players. Um, and I think that goes right through till, you know, about October. Um, Am I right should... in saying that um, that's, that's tiered? Is that correct? So, you know, the top... Definitely. Sort of... So, you're looking at, you're looking at uh, a lot of the players, so your top salary earners, you know, your Michael Hoopers, your Matt Tamuas, your Dana Hallett Petties. Um, and I, I think this is a symptom of, a, you know, a good cultural sign at, at the very least, that those bigger top-tier players are willing to take bit of a trim off their salaries to keep the bottom tier of the game afloat. So, you know, you're emerging players, you're, you know, first contractual cycle players that have come through in the last three, four years. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of sustainability, definitely needed to happen. It appears um, there's talk of clauses have been included for up to six players at the moment. So those same players that we, that I just rattled off before being eligible, you know, to top up their pay through 
potential overseas sabbatical stints where they, you know, look for six month to nine month contracts in something like your top league, your pro 14 or, or English prem. Um, I think we, we as, might touch on that a little bit later because mm. I know that the Japanese top league is looking at probably rescheduling their season so that it's probably harder to do mm. those sabbaticals. So you you may see those actually being six months overseas in the Gallagher Premiership mm. or in the Pro 14 because the way that they're structuring, you can't come back to the Super Rugby because there'll be mm. too much an overlap. It used to be four weeks. I think it's going to be eight or ten yeah. now. So I, I Looking wonder, like it, yeah. And I think whether that means players take the sabbatical where and when and how that works, I think that'll definitely impact that as well. It, it looks like too, Ned, that the, um, the sabbaticals will... The period of you know where this is eligible to happen uh, looks like it's twenty twenty one to twenty twenty three. So it looks like they're definitely trying to get this sort of shaking, shake the whole ability for players to get a top up overseas over in the next World Cup cycle, so that they're not having to you know hedge on this being an ongoing possibility for you know going into you know even twenty twenty seven. So right. at least it looks like they're trying to you know consolidate any potential uh, player image losses they might. Uh, you know, incur from all this. Right, and but I, the important I, thing too is that you know, sorry, Ned, um, the, how a lot of the players will have at least had their wages guaranteed through April. Um, yep. Which, you know, for players is going through this uncertain period, us very important at this stage, at the very least, that that's honoured. Okay, I think the next sort of question I've got is: Do what does it look like now? in the next six months for Super Rugby. Do we have any form of a competition? I know um, I was listening mm. to Morgan Turinui, Turinui sorry, speak the other day. He, he almost thinks that domestically, Australia should already have a competition up and running. Like we have the facilities. We only have five teams to control. You know, mm. do, do we see any form of domestic rugby being played in Australia in 2020? Look, for me, Ned, I, I think it's definitely erring, and as particularly as this you know, pandemic goes on and Australia seems to be doing pretty well, it looks like the possibility is just you know, increasing as, as the days come on, really. But um, look, I, I personally reckon we could see some domestic action at the very least, you know, potentially just before when we'd audit read the plan for you know, the rugby championship window. So maybe, you know... It, by August, even if, if things keep going the way they are, are you I talking think def- a club rugby competition, a Super Rugby, or an NRC? I'm I'm, I'm with you on the as far as at least for this year. I think I think we're talking at least you know the four Aussie Super Rugby franchises plus plus a Western Force potentially um, Sunwolves pending you know visa and travel arrangements yep. by them. But I think in the very least we're looking at you know the five Aussie teams. Um, there's even been a little bit of talk at the moment, um, potentially a little bit, you know, a little bit optimistic at this stage, but of a, you know, if Australia and New Zealand keep up the trend they're on, you know, could a trans-Tasman bubble be allowed to open seeing as both countries are doing so well at, you know, mitigating the virus? Um, as for me, I personally, I think at the very least, we can expect there definitely to be some uh, domestic action among the franchises. Probably, you know, just a, home and well not home and away but you know verse each other twice um and yeah no i definitely uh picked up on those points by morgan turinui uh 
good rugby brain on the fact that, yeah, we've got these facilities ready, you know, somewhere like the AIS. Um, even the NRL has been discussing options allegedly about, you know, something like the Homebush Olympic precinct. Australia's got the, you know, facilities to accommodate it if well, don't, need don't, be. Doesn't and, our rugby Australia slash rugby sevens own part of the facility there in Sydney, like a high performance? Yeah, area? well, more, more park. Yeah, the new, so I, I believe it was opened uh, about 18 months ago, two years ago, the new facility of Moore Park and, it's definitely got the gym facilities and that available. So potentially, you know, and rugby's got a few allies with the Sydney Cricket Ground Trust, which is, you know, just next door to it. So um, as far as, you know, being able to use some of those more elite um, broadcasting facilities, I, I don't think that'd be a problem. So definitely would be an option. As for accommodation, you know, um, I'm sure Sydney or even, you know, the greater Sydney area wouldn't wouldn't be, t you know, logistically impossible to make that happen. I. I think as for whether we can, you know, field the play, have the high performance environment where you've got, you know, the gym setting access to those amenities. I don't think that'll be the problem. I think the biggest hurdle would simply be, you know, um, <laughs> government regulations going forward, you know, around, um, you know, um, people congregating together. But um, it's definitely looking like the, you know, the dials are turning a bit more positive in at least the last week. So I think, I'd be surprised if we don't have some sort of action in the next six months. And I think domestic front. there are moving pieces in the sense that, so just in the last sort of six to 10 hours, South Africa has announced that um, all their teams are coming back to South Africa. So that's all their mm. pro 14 sides and all their super sides and are looking to build out a small competition based on those teams. Mm. Um, New Zealand has spoken similar about doing yeah. something, something along those lines. And, and I think if Australia does something similar is, does that look like the model we take into 2021 and beyond? Do we have nationally run domestic competitions that lead mm. into a, a, you know, a Champions League style of competition? Is, you know, what I'm saying is, is this a good lead way into, well, hang on, let's have a look at really how our uh, broadcast setup is built because at the moment it clearly isn't working. We don't have the viewership. We don't have the mm. crowd attendance and it doesn't have uh, the participation that it used to have. And, and the big talking point around it is because let's say I'm a Reds fan. We play half our games at home, half our games away. Mm. Half of those games away simply just don't fall in a time slot that I can watch. And I mm. think we're not in free-to-air space at the moment. So you need to have time slots that fit the consumer. And we don't have that. And, is this a way of restructuring our competitions so that every time slot has prime time games and we can host a champions cup in some sort of window or, yeah. you know, where, where do you see our broadcast still going in the future? We know there's an ongoing contract. Is it to 2023, the current broadcast deal? Uh, the current one ends at the end of this year. So okay. that's why there's an urgency around and there's talk that's come out in the last 24 hours that um, Raylene Castle and Rugby Australia look like they're going to hopefully resume uh, contract negotiations before uh, July, they're hoping. And so but, that's um, with Optus? With, with, well, that's the thing, yeah. There was, allegedly, they were a week away from a signature with Optus, which looked to include, a, I believe, so for those who aren't familiar, um, it looked like it was going to be a con an accumulated package where, you know, they amalgamated the grassroots game, potentially some schoolboys, 
where they would tear it into, you know, the grassroots leading up to super franchises. And, and you know, which, which understandably, you know, would make, wouldn't, if you're packaging those desir- more desirable elements, those more tribal elements of the game, you're likely to, you know, uh, you know, provide a more valuable product in a sense. Um, well, but yeah, it looked like there was going to be a, a free-to-air component as well, which I think a lot of people are understating the fact that, you know, if we're having potentially two super games, Australian domestic ones for that matter, played on, you know, a Saturday evening leading up to each other, you know, that's definitely a desirable thing. But as for the broader question of whether, you know, this is a good thing going forward, definitely. Look, I think a great symptom of what's wrong with Super Rugby is that whenever you talk to, you know, general sports fans, people that might have fallen away from the game that were once passionate about it, and you talk about it, they don't even call it Super Rugby. They literally call it what it was left off at. They might ask a question and be like, how's the Super 12 going? Oh, the Super 15, yeah. how's it? They're literally, they've tuned out. And I think there's a few problems with it that just quite would have sh- should have been a symptom that was noticeable years ago. The model was unsustainable from, from a long while back. And I think a lot of people make the mistake in saying that it all soured when we made that expansion into Argentina and Japan. I think it was, the model was inevitably headed this way. You know, we've got, uh, I, I definitely think that going forward, um, domestic is the way to do it. Um, you know, some people talk about a trans-Tasman element, but really, from, by all accounts, New Zealand don't appear too, all too eager on it. And secondly, you, you look at the fact that, as a code, we don't hold the lofty height we once did. Um, we need to hold the fate of our game in our own hands. Australia, Rugby Australia, for that matter, or whatever commission runs any future professional game going forward here, needs to be able to have every card on the table and fully adaptable to our market conditions. I think that, you know, you look at, um, I, I think the way forward personally for me is we need to look at, um, you know, clubs, clubs, existing franchise like the Melbourne Rebels, ACT Brumbies, you know, even the Western Force, that, that can work in a club model. You know, you look at the NRL and AFL, you've got teams like the West Coast Eagles that fit that model. Um, as for the, you know, Queensland and New South Wales in particular, I think that, if we're trying to fit in, and I definitely agree with you, the Champions Cup thing definitely ought to be looked at. I think that, and, I, and if I talk to a lot of rugby people, you know, professional past and present players, there's this, there seems to be this ongoing sentiment that the franchise system has really done a lot to hamper once what were once great tribal representative brands. You know, Queensland and New South Wales, it used to be, you know, State of the Union, it used to be a, an affair that, you know, I did my best in my club game. I'm playing for Queensland. I'm playing for New South Wales. So I think um, in trying to, you know, streamline some of the brand and catchment support base we've already got with the Reds and that, we need to be looking at almost making them more into like a, a club vibe, like a mega club, like how we've got the Brisbane Broncos. I'd love for us going forward to, you know, channel some of the, you know, brothers East West thing, but financially probably less realistic. And well, I don't the, see... That's the question. Yeah. And I think a, a big part mm. of where New Zealand see their future is um, in Southeast Asia. There's a, there's a big market mm. there for the game. And mm. I don't know what it looks like at the moment, but it, it doesn't look like what it currently does. We, oh, definitely We not. have to definitely have not. some, you know, whether it's you take the top 14, you take a Trans-Tasman and you take your South African competition and you make a Champions Cup out of it, whatever it looks yep. like, there needs to be it's- some element of Southeast Asia because that's where the money will come from. And the good and then, thing too is, but then Australia needs to focus on 
what's best for us. I think in the last sort of mm. five to eight year period with Sansa, people forget Sansa is actually a representative body of Australia. Mm, we're part of that. And New Zealand. We, we are own part of Sansa. And I think we've probably, you know, not put our best foot forward in, in that sense. So I think there needs to be a change. We are, you know, and I think Rayland Castle understands that. We're on a, mm. a path that can, that can work there. And you're right. We do yeah. need to go back to some of those tribal elements that really made rugby successful. Mm. You look at that 2000 to 2005 period when our game was booming and, and those elements um, really oh, definitely. Bought, bought into our super rugby model. And the, it sort of leads yeah, into thing. where I want to go next, Mitchie, is that mm. uh, with us in, in coming podcasts will be Duels, who is going to be working uh, specifically. I've, I've sent him on a mission a project he's done hours and hours of research um and the first part of it is i've decided he needs to build out uh, a rugby 15 for for a night out so once this coronavirus pandemic is over he's gonna have a 15 for us to take on um in the night out and he's and he's reliably sent me in a message um with our first player for our 15 who will start on the right wing and played in the 2000, early 2000 period. He had a bald head. He was big. And his name was Dell. So Big Dell is our first member of our <laughs> uh, going out 15. There's some cracking stories rolling around about him. Um, particularly, you hear some of those rugby league ones. Um, he was a, a bit of a beast both on and off the field. So he's our first member <laughs> of our going out 15. Um, and, and our all-time <laughs> night out side. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, some of those rugby boys, definitely some good blokes to get on the lash with. So I think we're onto something there, Ned. Look, on a, um, a more serious note, on the, in the last sort of 48 hours, details have emerged um, of that letter from 11 former mm. Wallaby captains asking the current leadership group to stand aside and, and sort of make way for some, for some new leaders in the Rugby Australian model. What, what do you make of that news? Do you, do you find it groundbreaking? Yeah. What you know, what comes of it, or is this just a repeat of the same Alan Jones sentiment that we've seen over yeah. and over again? Look, Ned, I, 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 I exercise that similar cautious, op, cautious, you know, that level of precaution that I can kind of sense amongst you there. Look, I think this letter, if it came five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, would have welcomed it. But now, now that we've finally got, you know, I'm not saying things are perfect with Rugby Australia because they're not. But now that we've finally appeared to at least be recognising some of the problems, which seem so bleedingly obvious for the best part of a decade now, I think that it's just, you know, almost publicity for the sake of it. I get that these guys, you know, some of these people have signed this letter, you know, tremendous contributors to the game here. And I don't take that away from them. But I I just think, I just think that, you know, now that we've finally, and and I get credit to Railing Castle where it's due, the fact that we're recognising that, you know, it looks like the model as it is, is pretty well broken. And it, quite frankly, it's amazing that it's, it's still, you know, the wheels on the bike are still on. But um, yeah, no, I, I think it's not helpful at all at this stage. Um, yeah, definitely would have been welcomed years ago. But now it just comes across as kicking a game while it's down and trying to get up. And I think that ties into the questions we've had or, or people have been framing around her leadership 
um, railing cast. Mm. And I, I think one of the things I always look at is what, what did she inherit? You know, she inherited a game oh, that exactly. was in, in, a, in a bad position. I can't really think of many decisions she's made that really hurt her. You know, what, mm. what has she done that's made our game worse? I can only think of things that she's done that are positive. I think of the fighting fund. I think of bringing yep, in, a, you know, a head of performance in Scott Johnson. And I think, mm-hmm. of, you know, electing a, a smart head coach and some really smart assistants. I think mm. the the game has been expanding into some state schools. She's been really pushing that mm. rhetoric. Um, you know, I, and yeah. the other part of it is we have just refreshed our board, you know, within the last... Yeah, Paul months, McLean, new chairman. Exactly. We've, we've got we've Daniel Herbert on there. Two or three new members join our board. So, you know, I'm confused as to what this, what this letter means. What do they want to happen here? Because it's not Railing Castle. She's not the issue. No, not at all. Um, and and if you wanted the change in the boardroom, you've already had that. So what, yeah. I don't understand actually where it's being directed. It is directed at her, but I don't understand why. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, a, a lot of people forget too. Look, a lot of the criticisms she get are, are leveled at her for things that, quite frankly, I can't see anyone handling better. The Izzy Falau saga was just a poison. It was just a, it it was a, the thing yeah. is about that, it's a lose-lose. There's no exactly. PR, could, positive PR that can come someone. out of that circumstance. No, exactly. And you look at, look, the, just the sheer fact that in the 25 years of Super Rugby, not once have Rugby Australia engaged um, an open tender market for the broadcast rights. I, I think, think just the sheer concept. fact that she's dipping her toe in the water is just a great thing. And I think yeah. that, if anything, that should be rewarded. And look, the fact that she... Before a pay negotiation, you know, this player pay deal was even sorted, that she was on her own volition prepared to take the pay cut she was going to. You know, she's clearly got, um, you know, the will to, and and clearly the motivation to see through this tough time. Um, I just think it's ridiculous. And the fact that so many of those captains, you know, chose to kick the game off down at a time when, you know, there's a lot of allegations that, you know, the, the broadcasting with some negative elements of the press making concerted efforts in what some people claim is, you know, to devalue the product, to get the up hand in rights values with Fox. I think, you know, it just, it just stinks a bit to me. And I, I, I find funny. Some of those names you see in the letter are um, the same people who have been pushing for change for many years. So you see Phil Kearns mm. is on that letter, which is quite contrary mm. to what he's, you know, he came out three weeks ago and said he doesn't want the position of CEO, but then yeah. signs on this letter. You know, and but but I find weirder the younger fellas. So you see, Gregan's on it, Mortlock's on it, George Smith's yeah. on it. Yeah. So I find that that a little bit interesting and that yeah. dynamic. And the weird thing I too is, I didn't know they were in that that boat. It's also odd too, Ned, that other than the fact that you know they're calling for change of leadership, all the general sentiments about we just need change of direction, all that sort of business. It's what they're trying to do anyway. It's just like broad, pithy statements, no solutions. And look, if they're happy to get on board and help the game, whatever meaningful way they can, all fairness, all you know, all, all applause to them if they're going to do that. But um, yeah, I just see them making general pithy commentary that's quite frankly either unwarranted or just a state of the bleeding obvious. Well, yes, see, we're not in a good position. That's kind but, of what I, know, I hope. I hope the letter was almost... Um, them asking to be called into action in some sort of engagement mm. role because I think that's where our former captains or and 
former Wallabies or any participants mm. in the game really have an active role is in those community, community engagement pieces, particularly in our growth areas. So, you know, yeah. what, where does rugby need to grow? It needs to go into the community more. Our grassroots game needs to develop more. We need to be going into more schools. Those guys, mm. your Mortlocks, your Grigans, your George Smiths, whoever it is, some of, you know, your John Eels, those guys have bases that are recognisable even by people who aren't rugby people. So They're still the, used today. Those are They're still the used today as the faces of the game. Engaged, you know, so mm. that, that's a failing on both sides there. You know, Rugby Australia should be engaging these people to go out into the community, but at the same sense, yeah. they, that should be their, I see that as a really productive role for them to play. Um, mm. and, and sort of, it's, it's a shame that you see lots of these things in Australian rugby at the moment being played in the public, whereas you see a yeah. lot of really well-run professional codes and teams and unions, they do it behind closed doors and those conversations go on without that public scrutiny. Yeah. And I don't, I don't disagree with some of the sentiments around, you know, the need to, you know, a lot of players, particularly like Stephen Moore the other week saying, look, super rugby is not sustainable. And I, and I get that, but yeah, definitely it needs to be more constructively provided. I think that, you know, these players have got a vast playing and community engagement IP that's just ready to be picked at. And the fact that like, I, I'd wager Ned that, you know, that the average Australian household is more likely to name, you know, a Sterling Mortlock, John Eels, you know, Greg and Lark and those sort of fellas than being able to name the current lot. You know, their, their brand power could be so handy in us able to market the game going forward in hopefully what will be a new, completely brand spanking new uh, product. Oh, there's no, there's no doubt about that. I think mm. this sort of leads into where I, I want to talk about specifically in this podcast today is um, our current community rugby model. So mm. for those of people who aren't aware, um, our current model sort of looks like the game is... So if we break it down, the game um, in every state in Australia is actually administered by that state's union. So for example, mm. um, you go into Queensland and you sign up to play uh, club rugby at a club, that game is being run uh, by the Queensland Rugby Union. And so you go into Victoria, mm. it's run by the Victorian Rugby Union and, and so on and so forth. Um, one of the questions that's sort of been put in at the moment is, is that the best model for us to run our game? Because what we see mm. is there's no alignment between unions because they, as yeah. much as we like to see that or think that we're all moving in the one direction for Australian rugby. Um, some of the unions are obviously aligned to their own region. So, you know, Queensland rugby wants to look after Queensland rugby players and, and mm. that's the way that union should be structured. But is that the best model for Australian rugby? Because I pay my fees to register as a rugby player and actually mm. none of that money goes to Australian rugby. It actually goes to yeah, the union. Like the GST, it's just distributed back to the provinces. You're right. Right. So yeah, I, no. I, I think one of the questions to be asked is, is there a better way for us to administer the game at a community level or are we currently doing it the most efficient way? Definitely a no is for efficiency. Uh, look, I, I agree with you there. I think going forward, and look, I as much as I'd like for there to be a complete overhaul of the professional structures in the next cycle, it looks like it's a bit late for that, given we need to get a new product 
by next year. But I think going forward, the d chief domain of the provincial unions, so Queensland, ACT, New South Wales, should be the professional arm of the game, you know, as administrators or, you know, um, facilitators of, you know, professional clubs slash city franchise teams. Um, I think that as for, you know, grassroots development, I think that should be the domain of Rugby Australia. You know, going forward, it does not make sense and it is so undesirable in terms from a productivity and efficiency point of view to have a bunch of different provincial unions moving in potentially different directions i think that i think that and new zealand do this really well i think that we need to be looking at rugby australia looking at unilaterally rolling out these programs that are nationwide and and, and i think in large part this needs to engage a lot of uh, that ip you know the former player ip that we we're talking about before but also some of the, you know, more financially, uh, you know, strong uh, community members of the game who have shown a willingness to get on board. You look at what Twiggy Forrest has done in WA, setting up um, his schools program, which is a bit of like, it's a bit like a um, get into rugby, not quite, but there's a there's one that's, that's specific in WA, they've piloted and it's like an Oz kick and WA have started really well. And I think we, Rugby Australia for that matter, need to engage these people to look at, you know, a more uh, uniform rolling out across the country. And you I know, something like Oscar is so underrated. I, th I think it's so true because, you know, I sort of did my first little bit of coaching last year. Um, mm. And what I found is I'm sort of lucky I've been involved with, a, you know, a fair bit of rugby my whole life and a few different coaches. So I could go and use those coaches as resources. Mm. But even at, you know, I'm coaching under 13 kids. There's no, well, uh, until this year, uh, there was no research uh, resource base for me to go to for, you know, for drills. Yeah. You know, we now yeah. have that. We now have that, which is great, but we need to be able to, unif as you say, uniformly, let's, let's roll out a product and in terms of our community engagement at the grassroots level and how that works. I think it has to come from a national position because mm, Queensland definitely. rugby might um, have a different set of values around how they want to play their rugby as the ACT. And I think that's okay. You can run those programs side by side, but I think, you know, there also needs to be a national funding model because it, the money goes straight back to the unions. And I think that's fair, but we need to look at how can we be more efficient in rolling out and hitting more people? How many kids yeah. can we get to? And what's the most efficient mm. way to do that? Is that employing 30 people nationally and you just roadshow them or you just, you know, you've got five each state and you just push them, you know, they're in a school every single day. I don't know. Mm. Because you, I, you go up to far North Queensland and for every rugby league program development officer, there's four AFL blokes, there's two cricket blokes. Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's one or two for the whole of far North Queensland from rugby. And yeah, if that know, really, so <laughs> that's, uh, that's the issue we face is. Yeah. And you just got to look at what New South Wales have done too. You know, this week they've rolled out that brilliant publicly available, um, you know, there's video instructional videos, but I'm just looking at that thinking, why is that not available or facilitated at a national level? It's such helpful IP to, that, you know, mm. community members and clubs can engage with, but, it's just not being, you know, marketed or promoted as something that should be for the mutual benefit of all Australians. You know, I'm definitely with you on the whole, you know, provincial unions might have an idea of how they want to play. 
I just think that, that that's only really of importance when you're in that professional environment where, where you've got teams from Queensland competing with teams from New South Wales and teams from Victoria, et cetera. You know, as for, as for developing good rugby players, what's important, and we look at New Zealand and increasingly Ireland with their, you know, domestic grassroots rejigging, it's all about the skill set development at a young age and the core fundamentals of the game. You know, there's no use to preaching, you know, you know, school kids being in ACT being like the malls are focused for us. That's only really something, you know, when you get into that, like t- game match tactics is more domain of the professional outfits. Well, where you know what they I say, they say it should, specialize. it should be, you know, 80, 20 or 70, 30 core fundamentals oh, match tactics. As I just read it. Yeah. Um, Eddie Jones's book and he sort of broke it down to about 70 or 80% on, key skills all day, even at the professional mm. level. Um, I think he's only developed that further. The one thing that I have seen, which is sort of in line with what we want to see, is that some of those programs that used to be QRU run in Queensland specifically and now run by the Reds, and I think that makes more sense. You know, if you're running an mm. under-18s academy, it shouldn't be a Queensland rugby under-18s academy. It's really a pathway for the Reds and, and that we need yeah. to make those clear distinctions because in my view, Queensland rugby's job, if we're going to keep our current model is to administer the community game. It's not yeah. to service our super rugby sides. I think it's actually the opposite because the super rugby sides have enough leadway in all their states because we've been so close to each other for so long you know, that mostly we're at the same facility. So we have side-by-side, um, you know, work, but it needs mm. to be separated out because our super rugby sides are professional sides that need professional pathways and we need those academy yeah. environments. Whereas our community game needs to be really specific about mm. developing that side. We can't convolute that model with two... Yeah things that have different purposes and just bundling them up into one. We, we just can't do it. We don't have enough resource to yeah. do that. You could, you could probably too say that, you know, the fact that we merged our QIU and Reds brands together, oh, what was it, 15 odd years ago, probably didn't help that. It probably conflated a lot of the messaging. And when you look at New South Wales and the Waratahs, I believe to this day they're still separate entities, which for all of the bureaucratic, you know, nonsense, how you've got all the different directions, the SIU and the, you know, Newcastle Hunter Districts Rugby Union and all that, at least you can point to this as well and say there's a concerted body dedicated to the more grassroots amateur element of the game. But at the same time, so, they're yeah. still so close. You know, you go to Victoria, mm. the Victorian Rugby Union and the Melbourne Rebels, I, wouldn't, I would be really surprised if there's things going on in the community game that the Melbourne Rebels organisation are not having direct influence over and they need to be separate. Yeah. Because yeah. if I'm a Melbourne Rebels guy, I'm only focused about the top 2% of kids. Whereas if I'm yeah. a Victorian Rugby Union fella running that state, I'm looking at 98% Brett. of kids. Yeah. You know, so you know, that's where we need to make a distinction. And that funding model needs to be looked at and how we can differentiate those. Mm, the last thing I look, mm. want to touch on here, Mitch, is um, quite briefly, is the World Rugby election. So in the last couple of hours, um, the Fijian candidate has actually dropped out of the race. Kane, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is quite lucky. <laughs> a few dodgy he may, character. <laughs> he, he may <laughs> actually kill someone. He may kill someone. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so how many years was he in jail? 14? Something like that. Oh, so, 
for yeah, something for that for beating at a his, man to death at his brother's <laughs> sister's what uh, wedding or something. Um, something for that. But can you provide us a little bit of an update on when those elections are actually happening? Um, you know, who's up yeah. for election, and you know, what are the key issues in this race? Yeah, well, yeah, it looks like so. The election will be happening in the next week, and it's between really. So the current incumbent chairman, we've got Bill Beaumont from the Rugby Football Union, um, and Agustin Pichot, his vice chairman. And it, so for what, those sorry, who aren't familiar... So one of them's from the English Rugby one's Union and one's English from... English Rugby Union and one's from Argentina. Argentina. Okay. So Agustin Pichot, for those who don't know, he was a, <laughs> quite a flamboyant uh, Argentinian scrum off. But yeah, basically... You had about 80 uh, Agustin Pichot's... Yeah, yeah, about that. And he, he's come out... He's really been agitating for change for a while now. But basically... I saw him interviewed this week. He's come to the point where he said, look, there's simply too much of this old boys establishment, which is too embedded in its ways, which is kind of, you know, shirking major structural reform. And so he's put his hand up to run um, basically as uh, the face of a reformed game. And Bill Beaumont, to his credit, has done a good job. He's got um, Bernard Laporte, who is the current with the French Rugby Federation at the moment. Um, as he's, he's running with him as his vice. And look, there's some good things in that, you know, both have got an in-principle commitment to, you know, globalising the game. But in terms of substantial elements of, you know, their plans, um, I definitely think that the best thing that could happen for Rugby Union globally is if Agustin Pichot wins, wins this election. You know, so we'd, we'd find out in May. He's president, is that correct? But he's the current vice chairman. So he's, right. he's currently under Beaumont as his you know, as his deputy, basically. Yep. Um, but he's basically just been pushing. And word has it that, you know, Bill Beaumont has said to him, can we hold this off? You know, I'll, I'll finish my tenure with the board um, after this, this if I win this term. But Agustin Pichot quite rightly said, look, we've got this opportunity here. COVID-19, professional sports Let's all around the world up. are going to be looking at, yeah, this is a very unique opportunity. And the thing is, We've got we've got the infrastructure. It's just organised in a terrible way. You know, we've mm. got you know that we can leverage so greatly off of these global brands. Rugby's developed the British and Irish Lions, the All Blacks, the Six Nations. You know, those are great institutions and they should be preserved. But the way that we navigate and employ them can be so much more efficiently run. You know, there's talk of revamping the Nations Championship, which was discussed last year. And for those who aren't familiar with, was basically a proposal to aggregate points from the six nations uh and rugby championships so like each team plays each each of the top 12 nations play each other once in a calendar year and there's a final between them with a promotion relegation element and uh for those who weren't familiar it was voted down primarily by a few of the rusted on six nations unions and i get why you know there's a lot of money in the game they're quite protection going to protect it naturally but there's definitely this uh lack of willingness or preparedness to engage from a mutually beneficial outcome across the whole game. And what scared a lot of the unions too was that promotion relegation element. But I think that going forward, Agustin Pichot, A, he's shown a willingness to, you know, work around some of the more malleable features about, you know, maybe, you know, we'll have a playoff fixture to, if that make, keeps you on board a bit more, potentially even having out of window games against, I don't like using the word, but tier two nations um, to, you know, get them on board because a few were worried that they'd be shut out for the most part. But no, definitely looking at some of these things, we've got these great institutions, but they're just not organised efficiently. So I think, I think that Agustin Pichot, but the video game as well, perfect example. 
of how yeah, we can engage that useful thinking. That. I think a couple of the key issues that have sort of he's sort of brought up in this election cycle is um, the ability for our smaller unions to have a say in what's going on. I think that's mm. a re- been really Equal important for him. Um, and the branding of the game. So he really, one of the big things, it sounds ridiculous, but he really likes the idea of um, publishing a, a rugby game um, for a branding. Yeah. And, it, and it, you know, it's simple, but it's effective and it, it oh, makes sense. A couple, of the, yeah. a couple of the other issues that he's been looking at is, well, world rugby in general has been looking at is putting together or rescheduling so that we can get a global season. Well, I know, I particularly mm. in the Northern Hemisphere, they're looking at moving their game to the summer. Um, and there are yeah. people who are on board with that because of the weather elements and all that different pieces. They, they actually don't mind that concept. So that would be really... Yeah. That, they would, have to that would be massive. Soccer too, in more of your soccer markets like Italy and England. So that's so another plus. That's, that's a huge, huge point for the next you know, World Cup cycle. Can we get a global season together? Because that's where a lot of the revenue comes from for our unions and if we can get that global seasons together i reckon you almost see a double because of the fixturing and you could get so many more games in and um, the and opportunities it, that arise from it are just huge if, if you've got all the clubs playing at the same time around the world firstly you don't have to worry about you know pacific island players not being able to represent their country then you look at the what's the externality of that you've got a better pacific test product those brands, Fiji, Samoa, they become more appealing if your Adradras and all that are able to play in the fixtures. You also can look at the fact that, you know, if, if the clubs are playing together, you can coordinate fixtures. Europe's got a great thing in the Champions Cup. There's no reason why the South can't have the same thing if, you know, Australia has a domestic comp in New Zealand and South Africa. And then potentially the champion of the South, the champion of the North, play each other in almost a Super Bowl arrangement. There's so many opportunities that arise if we're all on the same page. But yeah. As it stands, there's just so many structural impediments that are just standing in the way. Yeah, and I I think um, from an Australian point of view, we we really do need that international (laughs) season set up because it it just will, you know, that June test series, you get to that part of the Super Rugby campaign and it just deflates the whole season. It's just gone because Mm. you just, it's almost like two separate seasons. You just yeah. can't run it well, like the, that. So I will I will applaud the fact that they have this year it was bound to, they it was the first year of it not being during Super Rugby. So it was bound it was moved to July and then it was would roll into the rugby championship. But yes, as is, it still doesn't make sense to have clubs depending on the fact that they're north or south of the equator playing their club season at a completely different time with a completely different set of priorities. Yeah. It just bewilders me. Look, I think that'll uh, wrap us up here for our first ever episode on sideline experts. Thanks for listening to Mitch and I rabble on and in uh, the coming weeks you'll you'll hear Dules join in too and we hope to catch you next time. Looking forward to it. Cheers, Ned. Holy tomorrow. Um, yeah, good. Bloody, uh, you beauty.